Hey y'all, you're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. In 1959, after some years of it being clear that the Batista regime was going to remain oppressive and undemocratic, the Cuban people looked for a new hope. There were many contenders, but the man who won out, promising a return to democracy, was Fidel Castro. But it didn't take long for the people to realize that they were now under the rule of an even more cruel dictator. In an attempt to protect their children from indoctrination, persecution, and being sent to the Soviet Union for quote-unquote special training, many Cuban parents look for a way to get their young off the island, at least until this newest dictatorship was overthrown. So a plan was hatched by an Irish priest in Miami, and with the help of many, including the Eisenhower administration, over 14,000 Cuban children were flown to the United States. The first historian to write a book about this incredible feat, eventually known as Operation Pedro Pan, was Victor Triay. The book is called Fleeing Castro, and he's back by the woodpile to talk about some of the finer points and mysteries of this modern-day exodus. A few months ago, I interviewed Carlos Ayer, who was one of the 14,000 children that was sent out of the island. And if I remember correctly, he had stated that he knew of himself, his brother, and a few other boys that were part of this operation. But it wasn't until he was much older that he learned how massive it was. So in your research, when did the public learn how big this thing was? Well, you know what? I think that the public remembered that there were kids and camps and stories and people you knew who were came alone as children but no one really put it all together as what it was and then monsignor walsh um brian walsh wrote an article i forget the exact year and and he outlined how this whole thing started and then operation pedro pan group was started i think in the early 1990s you know again there were you know different threads um, the story, I think, that, yeah, there were the kids who went to the camps and whatnot, and then some very left-wing people had written about it in the 1970s and gave a completely uh, false version of that. But even then, I don't think anybody understood how organized this was or how big this was. Walsh came out with his article, and then again, the Pedro Pan Group was started, I think, in 1991, 1990 or so, and then they started to collect information. You know, Monsignor Walsh was alive, right? You know, many of the people who participated in the program as adults were still around, were able to share their uh, testimony. And then, of course, a lot of the people who'd been kids who'd gone through that, you know, there was greater awareness and the group started to grow. And of course, you know, information started accumulating, Uh, you know, picture kind of started to emerge. You know, again, from, from different means, and then that's when I stepped in. Uh, it was just complete timing on my part, and I'm the first one that brought it all together as a single book. Mm-hmm. But even after I, I, I wrote the book, I mean, information kept pouring in. I mean, they're learning things, you know, even to this day about Operation Pedro Pink, because it was so widespread, it, it, you know, especially where the children were sent outside Miami. 
with such a vast network that there's really no way of knowing, you know, everything that happened everywhere. I mean, you could track down who went where, but, you know, you have, I'm constantly seeing information on, you know, caretakers and schools and experiences and, you know, groups of friends that were formed because, you know, people start writing about it. But I will tell you this, when Operation Pedro Fan Group was formed and started to grow, most people who had been part of Operation Pedro Fan didn't even know it because at the time it didn't have a name. It was just kids leaving Cuba with visa waivers in kind of this organized effort, but it didn't have an official name. You know, people didn't have a, a, a sign that said, oh, I work for Operation Pedro Fan. That was a nickname given to it by uh, a journalist from the Miami Herald. But people started to become aware, and, it, and there were many people who had actually even heard of Operation Pedro Fan, had read about it, but didn't even realize they had been part of it. I don't want to say how many conversations, but it's a handful where I've been talking to people, and they know I've written a book on Pedro Pan, and we're talking about Pedro Pan. And I start asking, this is 20 years ago. You know, when did you come from Cuba? No, no, I came at it by yourself or with you? No, 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 by myself. I go, really? Uh, what kind of documents did you come with? Uh, and, and they'll explain it. Or in a couple of cases, they actually called their moms who were still alive to ask. And I said, you know, I think you were part of Operation Pedro Pan. And they're like, no, no, I wasn't. I, go, I don't know. Look up your name and see if you were. And they go to the database and they find their name. Now, if you went to the camp, so then it's, you know, it, it's, it's up more obvious to the person, mm-hmm. right, if you went to the camps. But if, if you just were on the Pedro Pan part, meaning that the airlift out of Cuba, you know, you might have gotten to Miami and your aunt was waiting for you and you started a whole new life. You really didn't, you know, give much attention to, you know, how you got here. And then years later, you find out that, hey, this was a pretty big deal of how, you know, just simply getting here. Uh, and, and then again, you have those who went to take care of the Cuban Children's Program who might have had a greater sense of it. It's really been a, an incredible thing. And, uh, you know, you know what I've also done a lot of research on was the Bay of Pigs invasion. I always tell people, if you were in the Bay of Pigs invasion, you pretty much knew you were in the Bay of Pigs invasion. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but if you were in Operation Pedro Pan, you know, 25 years might have gone by, 30 years, 40 years might have gone by before you ever knew you were in Pedro. <laughs> so I want to go back now to the events that led to, you know, parents having to make this decision that they were going to send their kids out. As you point out in the book, most thought that this was going to be for a short term, but yeah. you suspect that many thought this may be longer than just six months or a year even. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it all depends. I mean, people in Cuba could have shared information, but there's no public information, right? Because the government controlled the whole media, so you knew through your network. And what someone believed could have varied. You know, there are probably some parents who, you know, kept hope alive by saying, yes, we're all going to be together in a few months, but at, at some level understood that, that that might not be the case. You know, we're just sending them abroad to study, which is, you know, very, you know, pretty common among Cubans, you know, send kids from the U.S. to practice their English. And a lot of them convince themselves that that was it. You know, there's just political turmoil in the country. Good time to send you abroad to study. We'd always been meaning to do that anyway. And, and let's, you know, go ahead. And so psychologically for a lot of people, the Pedro Pan kids were less, you know, unaccompanied refugee children and more. And just the idea that they made in their own mind, students, right, going to study abroad. And even in the camps, 
right? Those kids who entered the Cuban Children's Program, when they looked for permanent places for them, they called the permanent placements becas, which means scholarships. Oh, I got my scholarship. Mm -hmm. Yeah, at a foster home somewhere (laughs) or a boarding school or a group home or something. But at the same time, you look a little bit more closely. Of course, the parents knew that this was really about something else and they might not see them again because if that wasn't the case, you would not have had the tremendous emotion that you had in the fishbowl in the airport, which I'm sure as you've read, the fishbowl was at the passenger area at Havana's airport where all the passengers were allowed in. Well-wishers, parents, whatever, had to stay behind on the other side of a thick glass wall, right, which, which you could see the person, but you couldn't hear the people. And the kids would have to go in there by themselves, check in, and take a seat in that waiting area, separated from their parents by this glass wall. And everyone who went through Operation Pedro Pan, that was a tremendously traumatic moment that some have deliberately forgot. Many remember every detail, but everyone went through something at that moment. The parents that I've spoken to, most of which, you know, of course, have passed away by now, it was like being hit by a sledgehammer that moment. So again, if it was just, oh, you're just going to Miami for a few months to learn English, you know, I mean, you have to assume that they knew it was about much more and that this may be you know, a lot worse than we think it is. Otherwise, I don't, I don't know if you would have had that level of, of trauma of separation at the moment of separation. We're not talking about something that set in later after things didn't work out the way they were supposed to. I think people understood this was a serious, very serious thing. But again, there was faith. And that faith that we'll be back in a few months, right? You know, we're going home was very strong among that whole generation of exiles, people in that first wave in particular. It was the middle of the Cold War. The Soviets were taking over Cuba. There was no way that myth of the 90 mile, that there was no way the United States would permit a a communist dictatorship run by the Soviet Union 90 miles from their shores. It's just impossible. That's just not going to happen. And so for that first generation, you know, faith was very high that we're going home. It was traumatic leaving Cuba. It was traumatic settling in the United States. Miami was not what Miami is now. Miami is in its majority Hispanic now, right? And the largest Hispanic group are Cuban. That wasn't Miami, the Miami that that first wave experienced. I mean, they were a minority and there weren't many Spanish speakers in Miami at that time. And so it was very difficult. But I would say, this is just my opinion, and I'm sure it does not apply to everybody. But in my observation, I think at least one of the most difficult aspects for that first generation was that feeling, you know, I just want to go home, Mm -hmm. right? I left home to go back home, right? And and I can't go back home. You see, because subsequent waves, communism was established. And I think those people understood, I just want to get out of here and start a new life somewhere else, right? But for that first generation, I mean, a, a lot of them really believe that, you know, we're going to go home. You know, you talk to older relatives and, and you hear stories and you talk to people. And a lot of them died with that yearning to go home because they never expected this to last. And, and But their exiles lasted three generations now. I want to talk about some of the the things that the warning signs that the parents 
of these kids when they realized that Castro was not going to bring elections back and that he finally fessed up that he was a, a communist or he was a Marxist. So if you don't mind talking about a few things that were, I guess, the, the red flags, like, for example, this concept of the revolution's new man or how the curriculum mm-hmm. at the school started to become politicized and weaponized. You know what? I just put away, you're not going to believe this, I was just showing somebody. And, 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 and I have it in, in a book, a copy of the, of the dossier that they would keep on kids in school and they'd keep them on workers and they'd and the neighborhood committees for the defense of the revolution kept them. I mean, it became a completely surveilled society. You were constantly being watched, constantly being surveilled, constantly being uh, evaluated, scrutinized, uh, kids in school. Uh, workers at, 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 at their workplaces, every neighborhood had a, had a house to keep tabs on everybody. But, I mean, they even had questions, you know, from the uh, uh, committees for the defense of the revolution at the neighborhood level. It's like, you know, does this citizen associate, you know, with any counter-revolutionary elements and, you know, and, and all this stuff. I mean, you were just constantly being watched. You could, the difference was is that it it, you know, the state was espousing an ideology that many people found offensive, but you didn't have a choice but to go along with it because it was a totalitarian system and there was a price to be paid for not going along with it. And again, like any totalitarian system, we hear about, you know, prison and execution, but usually it wouldn't even come to that, right? Just the psychological effect of social ostracism. You know, once they were consolidated in power, this is well after Pedro Pan. For most people, you know, it worked because, you know, we might get your son and, and, and put him in front of the classroom here, the seventh grader, and have the whole school, uh, you know, take turns one by one insulting him and putting him down. And, and you know, everybody's going to hate you. And I mean, and, and back then in Cuba, you didn't even have access to the outside world. Look, I'm going to read here from a, from a high school. I questioned. Okay, student, uh, social and moral conduct. Okay, yes or no? Maintains relationships with people disaffected by the revolution, who, who are against the revolution. That, that's, that's part of the dossier. Teachers got to fill that in. Do you know if this citizen has religious beliefs? Does this person maintain relationships with people outside the country? What country? Does this uh, student have family that are sanctioned or in prison? All right, explain the crime. Does this um, citizen have relations with antisocial elements, right? I mean, these are, you know, this is from, yeah, from a, from, a, from a high school, okay, from a technical high school. And every citizen had those things kept on them. So you couldn't escape the system, right? And it was a totalitarian. I remember my, my, my research for the Mario Boatlift book, stuff that I knew existed, but when people tell you the story, you just get a whole new sense of it, of how, cut off people were in Cuba during those years. I mean, no contact with the outside world at all. I remember this one interviewee who, who, who was a child when the revolution took over. He lived near the uh, port of uh, Havana. And they would go and they would get magazines like from sailors from other countries. And for them, the biggest thrill in the world is like getting a magazine from Greece or something, <laughs> right, which they would hide because it was like this contact with the, I mean, it was like North Korea. I mean, it, it, it was just horrible during, you know, especially from the mid-60s to the early 80s. It was terrible. But you asked me about the Pedro Pan kids and the warning signs that were coming. Of course, anybody who knew anything 
you know, about the world and how it worked, knew what was coming. And, and it did. I mean, it did finally arrive. And, you know, I've started researching a book now about a second unaccompanied Cuban children's exodus from Cuba, which occurred from the mid-60s to the early 1970s to Spain. And hardly anybody knows this even existed. And we're talking, of, you know, probably between three and 6,000 Cuban children. It just came out of the blue. Uh, very few people, you know, who, who didn't participate in it know about it. And, of course, the people I spoke to, they're like, you know, we can't believe nobody knows about this. And I'm like, well, you know, we're going to see if we can change that. But those, that generation of unaccompanied, you know, Cuban child refugees, what the Pedro Pan parents had predicted was going to happen, they were living through it. They were living through it. The school system. And if you did not adapt to the system, starting in the mid-1960s, they opened special concentration camps under the guise of being military units, right? But they're called UMAP camps, right? Which was a military unit for assistance um, in production. But what they were were concentration camps with, with, you know, with, with torture and work. And I mean, it was just... Awful. I mean, people were completely traumatized. You had these teenage kids and, you know, maybe people into their early 30s being sent there. And these were people who were either who continued on as Catholic, who grew their hair a little bit too long, whatever. Anybody who didn't fit in with that new model and was beyond hope, they would send them to these camps. And these were teenage kids, a lot of them, right? You know, they started with the military draft finally. And once the military draft went into effect, you could not leave the country if you were a male between uh, 15 and 27 years of age, right? I mean, it was just, it was, it was, it was horrific. I mean, it really was. And, and so the Pedro Pan parents had certain notions about what was coming and they were dead on. I mean, maybe the details, they didn't get them perfect, but boy, they were, <laughs> they were pretty accurate in, in what they saw coming down the line. In fact, I don't think, I think it was probably worse than they had imagined. There's a phenomenon called Pedro Pan was a, was a play on word from Peter Pan, right, with, with children flying. Mm -hmm. But Pan also means, or Pan means bread in Spanish. Uh -huh. So you have the Pedro Pan, and then you have the Pedro Sin Pan, the Peters without bread. And that's a nickname they put on these people in Cuba who, who fit the Pedro Pan profile, may have had documents from Monsignor Walsh to leave, but then the flights ended in October 1962, and they got stuck there. And they had to live their adolescence and young adulthood there. My mother-in-law, among them, my mother-in-law had a Monsignor Watch visa waiver, and she couldn't get out and had to stay there until 1981. And what those people had to live through was just terrible. And so, you know, a big part, I think, of the, of the Pedro Pan mindset, how they looked at things, how the participants looked at things, wasn't, wow, did I suffer? Did I go through a difficult time? You know, did, did I miss my parents? I mean, of course, all of that is yes, but then they always think, but what would have happened had I stayed? And they now, of course, in exile in Miami, there's plenty of people who did, who, who are their own age, who weren't with the system, whose families weren't with the system, and who had to live there and seeing what they lived through. And, and, that was, and, and that's very eye-opening. Yeah, there's several heroes in the story, and you've mentioned, of course, the main one here, Father Walsh. And I, I don't want to talk about some of the other 
people that we should give credit to, even though we don't have time to get to all of them. But I find it interesting that Father Walsh was, you know, he was a Miami area priest who was not American or Cuban, and yet he right. was a big force behind all this. He would be kind of like the Moses in this Exodus story. So talk about Brian yeah. Walsh and wh- how he got this idea to pull off this scheme. Monsignor Walsh was, you know, born and raised in Ireland, uh, went to St. Mary's Seminary in in Baltimore, which, if I'm not mistaken, is the oldest Catholic seminary in the U.S., ended up in Florida. But I think he was young. I think he was very idealistic, and I think, he, and he remained so his entire life. Very, you know, kind, very serious person. And I don't think he he, you know, looked for this. Right? I mean, he didn't create. It. He was just in a situation. Where Miami at that time, at the beginning of the of the refugee of the so-called refugee crisis, where a lot of Cuban families in 1960 had started, you know, fleeing communism, pouring into Miami. Miami was not a very big city at that time. Much of the public welfare was done through private agencies, mostly church agencies. And Walsh was the head of a of a small Catholic agency called the Catholic Welfare Bureau of the Diocese of Miami. I think the Diocese of Miami was only recently created. His job, you know, was to provide for kids who didn't have anyone to care for them for whatever number of reasons. There were around 80 kids, I think, or so under his care. But Walsh in Miami is witnessing the increase in demand for all these social service agencies in greater Miami. You know, he just kind of suspected that the same thing might happen to his agency soon if unaccompanied kids began showing up. And an unaccompanied child was finally brought to him in November 1960, a kid called Pedro, right? And, you know, Pedro's parents had sent him over, feared communist indoctrination, all of that. It sent to relatives. The relatives couldn't take care of him. He ended up on the street. They brought him to Father Walsh, being the head of the Catholic Welfare Bureau. Walsh took care of him, but he also took it as a signal to think, oh, my God, this is going to happen on a much larger scale. And so at that time, President Eisenhower was sending Tracy Voorhees to Miami to check out what the problem was with the refugees, uh, what they could do to help. Because, I mean, a group in Miami, you know, had come together, the Miami Executive Something Committee, I forget the name now, and petitioned the White House saying, hey, there's a refugee crisis. There's an immigration crisis. This falls under the federal purview. We can't do this alone. So President Eisenhower sent his uh, special envoy, uh, Tracy Voorhees, who had worked on the Hungarian program in 1956. And then Walsh, knowing Voorhees was coming, said, okay, he, he, you know, he, he brought together the different private child welfare agencies, and Walsh had a plan, and which is like, listen, when Voorhees gets here, this is what I want to present. And it would be that if unaccompanied Cuban children begin to arrive, that they would be taken care of by private charities, right? And that the children would go to an agency of their faith, right? Whether they're Catholic, Protestant, Jewish, right? Of course, 90-some percent are going to be Catholic. And that the care of those children is paid for with federal money, right? With government money. And the, and the federal government guy's coming now. So Tracy Voorhees went down. He met with this uh, Miami Executive Council, whatever the name was, they forwarded Walsh's idea and his proposal uh, to him where he's went back to Washington. They issued a report and they said, okay, um, if the number of unaccompanied kids reaches beyond the capacity of local charities, then the federal government will fund the program, et cetera, et cetera. That was the Cuban Children's Program, but that had nothing to do 
with getting kids out of Cuba. But there is a connection. Because meanwhile, in Cuba, you had a group form at Ruston Academy. You had the Cuban underground, and the Cuban underground was growing and becoming more active. There were connections with the U.S. government, with some of the groups. And a lot of people, a lot of adults were willing to participate in the underground and to run that great danger, but they wanted their kids out of the country because they didn't want the government grabbing their kids and holding them hostage until they gave themselves up or anything like that, which was kind of things that happened before. And so they're thinking, well, why don't we establish maybe a boarding school in Miami and we could send, you know, some of the kids to this boarding school while, you know, we take care of the problem in Cuba. And so a lot of this was happening, you know, within the world of Ruston Academy and Ruston Academy uh, was an American school in Cuba. Um, it, it educated Cubans and Americans in, in Cuba. The headmaster was James Baker. And uh, Baker had taken over the school, I think, in the 30s, maybe, or so. Baker went to Miami, right, to look to establish a boarding school, right, for these kids. And not just the kids of underground members, but other people who had expressed to him a desire to get their kids out of the country. So, Walsh, or rather, Baker did come, you know, exclusively to put up a school for the children of underground members, but whoever else, but nobody knew how big this was you know, going to be, even potentially. And so he was going to meet with the heads of American corporations who had been kicked out of Cuba and were waiting to go back to raise money for this. And so you know, he's networking in Miami with his idea. Somewhere along the line, someone tells him, hey, listen, go talk to this priest, Brian Walsh, because he's also been dealing with the issue right, of getting kids out of Cuba or with, you know, unaccompanied kids. So they meet, Walsh persuades Baker to dump his idea. I mean, Walsh pointed out a lot of shortcomings that Baker's idea had, and Baker acknowledged that, uh, like, you know, year-round care and parts of the custody and all of this. The point is, Walsh showed Baker, listen, the whole thing of caring for kids who come from Cuba without their parents, what's that? I've done that. You don't have to do that. That solved half of Baker's problem. So, I mean, Baker was thrilled. And then all Baker had to do was get the kids out. And so they established the system before Baker went back to Cuba to get the kids out with student visas uh, through Coral Gables High School. Baker goes back. This is already, I think, in December 1960. There were some issues with the U.S. Embassy, and they wanted you know more paperwork, and Walsh had to go about it. You know, Finally, kids start to show up after Christmas. Uh, and then there were other kids who were already in Miami who came forward to Walsh. Walsh officially requests the money. But then January 3rd, 1961, the U.S. Embassy closes. And they figure, okay, well, this is over. You know, the whole scheme with, you know, Baker and Walsh and, and, and uh, other company kids. But Baker had left the committee at Ruston Academy, a five-person committee, to continue the exodus of kids right, whose parents wanted to get them out through the British Embassy, through Jamaica, right? And on that committee was uh, Pancho Finlay, who, who was the regional director for KLM Royal Dutch Airlines, right? We flew to Miami, flew to Kingston, right? You had Penny Powers, right, who, who was a British citizen connected to the British Embassy. And she had also worked on getting Jewish kids out of Nazi-occupied Europe during World War II, out to her native Britain. And so the plan was, you know, when, you know, you know, Baker does leave and Baker gets to Miami and he tells Walsh, listen, we got this plan where we could get these kids British visas to fly to Jamaica because Jamaica was still a uh, British possession at the time. And we can get them airline tickets, right? So we get them out of Cuba. You know, one flight goes from Havana to Kingston, 
right? And if we do that, they go to Kingston, get the U.S. documents, fly to Miami the next day. The other flight of the week goes Havana to Miami to Kingston. If they're on that flight, they could just get off the plane in Miami. Perfect, great. Walsh has, has of course, get approval for this. And, and he's had to go to Washington, D.C. anyway. So he made a couple calls, people he'd already dealt with, you know, particularly one called Frank Auerbach of the visa section of the State Department. And he said, yeah, come see me when you're in Washington. So Walsh very innocently goes Sunday afternoon, rainy, cold, empty Washington. So he oh, very cloak and dagger the way Walsh would uh, talk about it. They tell him, yeah, that's fine. You know, Jamaica plan's fine. We just got to check uh, with the British, with the right U.S. agencies, but it shouldn't be a problem. But here's what we got in mind, right? Visa waivers. Again, when the embassy closed, the U.S. had to come up with some way to allow Cubans to continue to leave. And there was this loophole in the law, right, that allowed in special emergency cases a visa waiver. And they were going to start issuing visa waivers to Cubans on the island. But, of course, they would have to be requested by someone in the United States. And State Department issued like 400,000 visa waivers for Cubans. But in Walsh's case, they offered him something special, not only a visa waiver, but they empowered Walsh to create visa waivers himself and issue visa waivers on the letterhead of the, of the Catholic Welfare Bureau with his signature. And they approved him to do that for any child between 6 and 18 years of age. Those between 16 and 18 would have to have a, a security clearance. And so Walsh was like, Great. Later that day, the British said fine. The Justice Department said fine. Uh, Walsh traveled to Jamaica, got everything set up there for the kids who would continue. Going. But with the visa waivers, they can come straight to Miami because the Cuban government needed documentation for the kids to leave Cuba. And, and they, they would accept visa waivers. And of course, Walsh, according to Walsh, he sent around a dozen visa waivers into Cuba. And then in Cuba, they were copied by underground printers and distributed to Catholic schools. Catholic parishes, churches, all sorts of centers from where they were, uh, you know, given to individual uh, kids and their families. And and it had Walsh's copied signature, which the Cuban authorities accepted. All they had to do was fill out the child's name on the blank line and get their other documents, and they were good to go. Then you had to buy a plane ticket, which, of course, was a lot more difficult, getting a seat on the plane, being able to get the money for a plane, but they figured it out. And so 14,048 kids later. You know, within, you know, less than two years, it's just unbelievable. That was early 1961. It ended October 1962. 14,048 kids came through that exodus. And tens of thousands more would have also left Cuba uh, via Pedro Pan had the flights not been shut down with the Cuban Children's Program. I've said it once, and I'll say it again. There is such a great movie here to be made. I mean, you think, think about you got this Irish priest down in Miami. you got a Kentuckian in Havana. Right, James Baker. And, you know, when I interviewed him, he had just the slightest and very elegant accent. And then he was great to talk to. I interviewed him in 1994, I think it was. or 19, Yeah, it, it must have been 94. At his house in, at his uh, condo in, in Ormond Beach, Florida. Mm-hmm. And he was just as nice and as gracious uh, as can be. And I will tell you this: I know you know you know quite a few people who went to uh, uh, Ruston Academy, and everybody has just the greatest thing to say about James Baker. I mean, they just the the, the students. I mean, just absolutely adored him. Very highly respected. 
I'll say one last thing about Father Walsh. One story or exchange you have in your book. It strikes me that Father Walsh was basically a act first and get permission later right. or ask forgiveness later. And he's right. telling somebody above him in the Catholic Church, that I think the guy's last name was Carol or something like that, yeah. that the bishop, yes, yeah. yeah. He's kind of hinting around that, yeah, he's going to do some of this, get some of his children in, and trying to, I think, kind of downplay the numbers. But uh, his bishop yeah. is like, you need more. You, you do as much as you can. You know, don't right. don't hold back. Right, don't hold back. What do you and, and Walsh thought he was, you know, he was going to be defrocked or something. Right. Having done this. <laughs> but it was the, you know, the opposite reaction. But, you know, Walsh, you know, I always say it was very important that he was young because, you know, there's just, you know, I'm not a, a scientist, but, you know, you live long enough, you realize there are certain ages where you're just unafraid, you know, and you just are more willing to take risks than you are at other ages. And and I'd say, you know, Walsh being as young as he was, you know, might have been, I'm not saying it was, but I'm saying might have been very, you know, influential in, in just the level of bravery that he showed and courage that he showed. He just stepped up and said, oh, yeah, I'll do this. Oh, yeah, don't worry, we'll network with Catholic. I mean, the, the amount of energy that was needed for Walsh to do what he did. I mean, Walsh immediately, I mean, he had a network with um, Catholic Charities that extended, I think it was within the 35 states or something. I mean, it was just amazing. He kept track of all those kids and where they were, and if there was any, you know, some kind of a change in their situation, right? I mean, it was just, you know, unbelievable. Now, not all 14,000 required care, only about half of them did. Right. But still, if he went from an agency in charge of like 80 local kids, to all of a sudden being on the receiving end of a refugee wave and having they post Pedro Pan and it's just Cuban children's program, over 7,000 within months. Right. You know, went from 80, 80 kids under, under his care to 7,000 kids. I mean, it's just, it, 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 it just mind-boggling. Another person who ends up helping in this, and this is probably the most ironic uh, person, is uh, Juanita Castro, the sister of Fidel. Right. Talk about her real quick. Right. After the Bay of Pigs invasion, um, a lot of that original committee fell apart, the Rustin group, all of that. I mean, some of them remained very involved, and don't get me wrong. But after the Bay of Pigs, a lot of the underground networks fell apart. And then uh, a brother and sister, um, who were the nephew and niece of a former Cuban president, Ramon Grausam by Ping, his nephew and niece, uh, Ramon and Polita, became, you know, really kind of the central, you know, among the central people in Operation Pedro Pan. And so Polita, um, in the book, I, this is from an interview I had with her, uh, I'll read directly from the book. Polita uh, remembered times when it was difficult finding spaces aboard airplanes for children. Because again, that was a challenge for everybody leaving Cuba, right? It wasn't a matter if you had the documents to leave. It, I mean, those were difficult enough to get. But even more difficult was finding space on an airplane because most of that first plane left Cuba aboard regular commercial flights because even though the U.S. and Cuba uh, ended diplomatic relations in January 1961, Commercial flights between the two countries continued until October 1962. So almost everyone who left Cuba as a refugee during that period went from one airport to another, right? It was, it was, it was it really, it was like an airlift for almost all the refugees. Mm. But anyway, so for you to remember when it was difficult finding places aboard the airplanes for children, in those cases, she utilized the services of her good friend, Juanita Castro, Fidel Castro's sister, who was active in the struggle against her brother and who had connections at Havana's airport. So there you go. And, and I know she was around Miami. 
you know, for a lot of years. There's a few other people I want to mention because some people did pay a heavy price for helping. Of course, they were the ones in Cuba that tried to help. And you mentioned like a one figure name, uh, Serafina Lastra and uh, Polita mm-hmm. and Mongol. You know, I don't know. I've, I've never seen, you know, any documentation on, on their trial, you know, specific, but they were very involved in the underground at some very deep levels. They had for a time, right? Because remember, even in, in totalitarian takeovers, right, we know where it ends up, but, you know, sometimes we forget mm-hmm. that, you know, just the, the psychology of it, you know, something takes some time to really assert complete control. Like, you know, for instance, the airport, right? I mean, Havana's airport had always been a free place. I mean, from the from Castro's government, from the time of taking over the country to the time where they would have changed the culture to a degree, you know, to control everything in the airport, right? It, it took some time, right? And, you know, just culturally, psychologically, whatever it is. And Ramon Grau San Martin was a, was a very beloved former president. Like everything in Cuban politics, there are people who didn't like him and people who loved him. But, you know, generally speaking, he was seen as good and, and people respected him and, and this and, and he was a bachelor. And Mongo and uh, Polita were his, his nephew and niece, which were, you know, practically his, his children, right? I mean, they viewed him as a father figure to a certain degree. So that family did probably have a little bit of a layer of protection just from, you know, from habit, from people's expectations. And so they were allowed to be active probably for a little bit longer. And then, you know, just the time came when the Castro regime just said, okay, that's enough of this. And they were both arrested and they both served very long prison sentences for the anti-government activity. At what point did the Castro dictatorship figure out what Walsh and everybody was up to, and what was their you know, reaction? Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, that's always been the $64,000 question. <laughs> I think it would be crazy to assume that it didn't know what was happening because they knew everything that was happening, especially among the type of people who were carrying this thing out, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you know, these weren't random people. These were people already from, you know, segments of society that were considered the enemy. And... Many people believe, and I don't think anybody could say definitively, that the government knew, and and you have had defectors later who commented on this, that the government knew full well it was happening, and they allowed it to happen for the the simple fact that they were getting rid of their opposition, you know, present and future, because they knew that if these kids left, then the parents would follow at some point. And if they were out of Cuba, they were no longer a threat. Being in Cuba, right down the road, not only were the parents currently a threat because they were not people who were going along with the with the new way of doing things, but that their children would become potentially a threat later. And so I think that this was just a convenient. Now at the same time, I think the people who were leaving and the people who were helping people leave, you weren't sure if they knew you were leaving or not. Maybe there was just a chance that you were really doing this secretly, and even if they knew. You know, they could pretend they don't know, and you pretend that they don't know and whatnot, and you just keep it quiet and you leave. You don't want to call attention to it, and you don't want to force their hand, right? And so everybody just kind of quietly went about it. But there was always the threat. You'd be stopped at the airport. You'd be called out of line. 
nobody knew and it happened all the time you know passengers such and such you know report to the security and or they, or they come up to you and they just take you away and nobody knew why or where and or anything else and i do know of a couple of cases of people who were arrested at the airport and ended up in a prison for many years mm-hmm. for whatever reason there was always that fear that anything can happen this is a, a situation where government is completely arbitrary they can they can crack down do whatever they want when they want and maybe just maybe they're allowing this to happen and they're just pretending not to see it and so let's keep it that way mm-hmm. and until we get out and so I, I i would find it hard to believe that the exodus of 14,000 children through this you know gate at the airport you know and 14,000 sorrowful goodbyes with parents and parents on the balcony of the airport, you know, of an outdoor balcony that you can wave goodbye to the plane. I doubt that they just happened not to see that. <laughs> I mean, this was, you know, a country that every day was being more run by the political police, by secret police, by, by spies in society. Of course they knew. Now, of course, why they let it occur, well, that's speculation. But I think that, that there's some pretty strong arguments as to why. Especially that it's consistent with subsequent waves of emigration and why they permitted those waves to happen. The first time that you and I talked on the podcast, we had talked about July 11th of this year and how even with that, you have crowds of people, you know, screaming out, you know, Libertad, Libertad, that the left in the United States, of course, the Castro regime and all their proxies, you know, they have to tell the story a different way. They can't ever accept the truth as it is. So you mentioned there was a left-wing interpretation of this Operation Pedro Pan. How did they spin it? If you read some of the stuff written in the 1970s, I think it's part of the human condition and human psychology. If a picture is painted for you based on your pre-existing beliefs, and it is a strong picture, and it is a beautiful picture, and it is just it, feel, it fulfills all your dreams and aspirations, even if vicariously, you don't like to hear the truth about that if it's not quite what your brain internalized it to be. So I think a lot of these people were so enthused by their interpretation, by their view of the Cuban Revolution and Castro and Chega. And these aren't even people who were alive when it happened. These are subsequent generations who were exposed to the whole mythology of the revolution and all the signs and symbols and socialism and anti-Americanism and rebels and revolutionaries and all this stuff that they don't like for that picture to be stained in any way. They're just willing to accept whatever spin is put on it because I think so many of these people are so emotionally invested, psychologically invested. You know, they have argued in favor of this system and this government with other people. So now they got a a public stake, right, in all of this. Some of them are academics who've written books and articles about it, right? Once you're invested to that degree, I mean, you're looking for a lifeline. And, if they, and, and, and that's not hard to provide. And the government of Cuba and their, and their followers here uh, will come up with some explanation as to why a, you know, a July 11th happened. And they'll just go along with it because, you know, all the arguments are ridiculous. But in 30 seconds, you can't disprove them. Right, you can't prove them, but you can't disprove them. So it's easy to go along with. And if I want to think, oh, this was just a small group of people paid by the CIA, you know, and then I can say that. And as as ridiculous as that is, you can't disprove it. When it comes to the overall history and writing about Operation Pedro Pan, 
there were just a whole lot of people in the 60s and 70s, including, you know, spearheaded by some Cuban Americans who had been somewhere along the line, attracted to left-wing ideology while they were in college, while they were at the university. It was very hot during those years. Who somehow or other looked at the Cuban Revolution, not through the eyes of their parents or through the eyes of what they lived through, but through the eyes of these people who presented it all over again for them, right? And somehow, you know, they just became what they became. And some of them were the ones who wrote about Pedro Pan in the 60s and 70s. And, and I remember this one line somewhere, and, and, and I wish I could find it, but it would be impossible at this point, that said, for the children, for the children, it made no difference whether they were sent to camps in the United States or to camps in the Soviet Union. How do you disprove that? It, it, as absurd as that is, right? So I did a little bit when I wrote the Pedro Pan book. When I was, when, you know, I always tell people when I was a child because I was I was still in my twenties when I wrote it, you know. But but I had the idea to ask, you know, my interviewees, you know, to read them the quote, you know, without it warning, and say, "Listen, I'm going to read you a quote, and I want you to respond," or just different Pedro Pans that I met, whatever. And then I'd ask, and I'd read that quote to them. And they would listen very carefully, and they'd nod as they're listening. I'm listening, I'm listening, you know, giving that 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 uh, signal that they're paying attention. And then I'd finish, and then they'd stop nodding their head. And then they'd look at me and say, what? <laughs> and, I'd read it to them again. and I'd have to read it like two or three times because I couldn't believe that anyone could ever say anything so absurd. The biggest risk that I ran was that they would get mad at me because they might think that I was suggesting that, mm -hmm. and and I would say no, no, you know, you know, this is a quote from you know this place, whatever. Uh, but that you know, but that's what's out there, and if you don't know the difference, if you and most people don't know the difference, whatever convincing argument they see first, that's what they're going to believe. And people who aren't even emotionally invested in it, people who are just casual observers and i know because i've spoken in a lot of places to a lot of crowds and have no knowledge of cuba and someone will raise their hand and they'll say well but but i was told and, and they're not doing it to be mean and they're not doing it to challenge me and they're not doing it because they're they're bad people but they'll say well you know what i've read right a lot of times they didn't read it a lot of times they you know saw it on a video or they're mm -hmm. a talk or somebody you know, at a bus station, who knows, you know, handing them literature. And, and you just realize, my goodness, you know, how do, how do these people even get these, this false image? But I can tell you, though, on the Pedro Pan front, I knew how big it had gotten from the time that I wrote my book, which was in the early 90s, right, when I did most of the research, and what just the accumulation of information and I'm not attributing it to my book, but, you know, my book, the Pedro Pan Group, a lot of other books that were written, articles in dio Catholic diocesan newspapers all around the country. I mean, again, this just kept getting bigger and bigger. And I remember uh, there's a Catholic school up here that I'm involved with. And the Catholic school was getting a new principal from a town very far away from the town that I live in, probably about 40 minutes. And, you know, kind of in a, not rural Connecticut, but certainly much more rural than where I live, and I met the new principal, and she mentioned, oh, my daughter's marrying someone Cuban. And I go, really? And, you know, I found that interesting. And then she tells me, out of the blue, just out of the blue, first time I met her, she asked me, 
Have you ever heard of Operation Pedro Pan? Oh. <laughs> I said, yes, I wrote the first book about it. <laughs> and she looks at me like, you know, what? And, and, I, and I ended up getting her a copy of the book, right? But 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 the fact that someone, you know, just kind of in that kind of place, which is just kind of, you know, off the beaten path, New England, had heard of Operation Pedro Pan, which is to go. And I'll tell you what, Carlos Ada's book, of course, you know, put probably put Pedro Pan on the map more than any other book because I mean his book was translated into like twenty different languages, and I had people in my little town in Connecticut. I, I mean, I'm the only Cuban a lot of people know, and so they were coming up to me. People have nothing to do with Cuba, no interest in Cuba, coming up to me and asking me, "Hey, you know Carlos?" <laughs> I go, yeah, "As a matter of fact, I do. He's a good friend of mine." And but the number of people who learned of Pedro Pan from reading his book. And it was just, just, just incredible. I mean, I mean, because of course he was very successful, won a national book award. I mean, I mean, and a national book award is like a Pulitzer. So uh-huh. you know, you have a book, you know, by by someone who came on Operation Pedro Pan, and and of course his second book, um, uh, Learning to Die in Miami, talked a lot more about Pedro Pan. But Waiting for Snow was going toward Pedro Pan, mm-hmm. right? And so the number of people who learned about Operation Pedro Pan through Waiting for Snow was just just incredible. I have one last question, and uh, speaking of uh, Dr. Ayer, one thing that he said when he was talking about publishing Waiting to Die for, in Miami was that uh, he got a lot of letters from other Pedro Pan kids that, of course, are grown up, and you know, thanking him, and that was made it worth it to him that he was able to legitimize, I guess is the word, their experience. Yeah, uh-huh. And so, oh yeah. So I say to you, you obviously got reaction too, and you must have gotten letters from uh, Pedro Pan participants. And mine was long ago enough that some came on email and some actually came through the regular mail because email was still very new uh, by that time. But yeah, definitely, I got I got a lot of great feedback. So yeah, so give us some a couple highlights. What are the things that? You, you'll never forget till you, the day that you died, like some of the reactions oh, you got. Oh, boy, I wish, I wish you prepared me for this question uh, <laughs> before. But, you know, some of those people that, that I told them they were a Pedro fan, right? And they were like, you know, what, me? No, I don't, I don't think so. I go, <laughs> well, you know what? Check, you know, see what happens. Uh-huh. Um, but so, you know, I would say, you know, a lot of those moments, um, you know, I was kind of surprised that the book got published. I think maybe the biggest surprise to me is that I started to see the importance of the Cuba thing in college, in graduate school. But even as late as finishing my PhD, I, I still underestimated its importance, right? When I sent the manuscript to the University of of Florida, I said, why would they publish anything about Cubans in Miami. Of course, you know, what was it? It was the largest exodus of, of unaccompanied children in the Western Hemisphere to that point. 14,000 kids, see a State Department, Catholic Church, refugee camps. But in my mind, you know, being from Miami and having been raised around those kind of dramatic stories, I didn't realize, I still didn't completely realize the significance of this. And I was kind of in shock that they got back as quickly as they did and said, yeah, we're interested in publishing this. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I'm like, wow, really? Are you sure? (laughs) So, you know, I would say the overall reaction, the interest people have taken. But let me tell you about about Carlos's book, too. You know, Carlos, you know, I would say his greatest country that he is an absolutely brilliant writer and, and a better person. He is an incredible person. But as a writer, he's, he's, he's brilliant, he's talented. I call him the, the, 
the Victor Hugo of Cuban exile, <laughs> right? And that he was to vote. I mean, this is a guy, you know, PhD from Yale, Ivy League professor. His area, you know, is a, is a very interesting field of study, uh, you know, 16th century religion, you know, and he was a major and still is a major global scholar in his field that he would take all that talent and just pour himself out writing about us, right? I think it's his greatest uh, contribution ever. And, and it, when I read his book, and again, I was raised in Miami, but I was raised by Cuban parents in a Cuban community that I'd done research on. And I, and I always had an interest in my parents' lives, that generation's life in Cuba. And, you know, he grew up in the same neighborhood my parents did, went to similar school, all his references. And I'm reading this thing and I'm like, and then in learning to die, I didn't realize he ended up right with a Jewish family in the neighborhood that I grew up in oh. and went to my parish church in the years before I was even born. And I'm thinking, my goodness, people in like around the world are reading about St. Brendan, St. Brendan Parish, mm -hmm. and they're hearing stories about La Salle, and they're hearing, you know, all these stories that we were around in this little tiny corner of the world, and that he put it at that level, with that degree of elegance and talent, um, I mean, winning the awards that he did, I mean, he really put a lot of this on the map. And Pedro Pan, you know, I, I think that, that his book helped enormously in raising Pedro Pan. If you'd like to learn more about Operation Pedro Pan, for sure check out that interview we did with Dr. Carlos Ayer, talking about his own experiences and books on In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile, episode 250. Also, Mr. Triai joined us recently on 254 for another discussion on Cuba, specifically about the recent protest on the island and subsequent crackdown. Also, I want to give a shout out to Willie Torino, whose music we used on this episode today. The artist himself, one of the Pedro Pond children. In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean.com. If you'd like to send us some hate mail, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. See ya, and I wouldn't want to be ya.